from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. The full text is included in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read it. Let us all listen for God's word for us this morning. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text uh, comes also from the lectionary. It's from the book of Matthew, uh, the 22nd chapter, verses 15 through 22. Continue to listen to God's word to you uh, and to me. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he had said. So they sent their disciples to him along with uh, the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're sincere and, and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and that you show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things 
that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, we would be different people than those who have begun this time of worship, that we would tell a different story, that we would walk a different way, that we would follow even after the one called Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our sibling, and our friend. Amen. Well, during uh, my senior year of high school, I I began attending uh, the church youth group of a family friend. I remember one kid in that youth group who was especially popular, and I must confess that over time, I became jealous of him. Everyone admired him. He he was a, a leader. He was kind. He possessed a winsome and mature faith, and many of the youth group girls made him the object of their affection. As I attended that youth group on a regular basis, my jealousy uh, only grew. Well, after attending for about three months, it came time for the annual youth group Christmas party, and one of the traditions of that party was that everyone would bring a wrapped unmarked gift with them. And the gifts would be uh, piled up in the middle of the room with, with no order. They would just be piled on top of each other. The youth leaders and the youth pastor would, would bring extra gifts as well, uh, just to build the pile up some more and also in case someone had forgotten the instructions for the party that night. So there were more gifts than there were people. Now, there were about 100 high school students at this particular Christmas party, and after all the gifts were piled up in the middle of the room, we moved back to the wall, to the perimeter of the room. The youth pastor yelled, go, and we rushed the gift pile, each person grabbing one gift and then returning to the place they had come from. At that point, we would go around in a circle, and you had one of three options. You uh, could open the present that you grabbed and keep it. You could exchange the gift that you had for a gift that still remained in the middle of the room in the pile, or you could take a present from someone else, open it, and then give them yours. One of the rules was that once a present was opened, it could not be stolen away. So here's what happened during Christmas time, 1992, at my youth group party. As we rushed to the middle of the room in what was a bit of, of sort of exuberant, organized Christmas chaos, I thought, I thought I saw the popular kid. I thought I saw him not only grab a present from the pile, but also grab a smaller present and subtly slip it into his pocket. I thought to myself, I cannot believe this. I've got him. I've got him. He's trying to steal an extra present. I thought, now's my time to expose this cheat and this thief for who he really is. And I'd be dubbed 
the youth group Christmas hero. Well, when it came time for my turn, it was early on in the game, I said, I want his present. And I, and I pointed to him from across the room. And he began to move toward me. I began to move toward him. And he started to hand the present he had in his hands. And I said, oh, no, not that one. I want the present in that pocket. And he innocently responded, I don't have a present in that pocket. I said, oh, yes, you do. I said, I want that present in your pocket. To my utter horror, he reached into his pocket, he turned it inside out, and from it fell a a, a balled up wad of Christmas wrapping paper. See, what had happened was, in the scuffle in going for uh, the Christmas presents, uh, some of the wrapping paper became dislodged from another present, and he simply did a good deed and picked it up and put it into his pocket. Hoping against all hope, I said, well, I'll take what's in your other pocket. Sure enough, there was nothing. He offered a gracious smile, but it could not come close to undoing my embarrassment and my shame. I said to the youth pastor, you know what, I'll just keep the present I have. Well, friends, whether it's born from jealousy or or born from animosity or born from fear or hatred, feeling like you have your nemesis cornered, feeling like your enemy has no other way to turn, feeling like you have them against the ropes, that feeling is intoxicating. I imagine that this feeling is similar to what the Pharisees may have experienced as they sought to lay a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees felt pretty justified in coming up with this plan. Jesus' popularity began to rival uh, their own, and his authority was growing throughout the region. And frankly, they were jealous of him. They were jealous of him, and, and they were scared of him. And ultimately, the Bible says that they were angry with him, and they wanted to arrest them, but they arrest him rather, but they didn't because they feared the crowds, because the crowds, the the populace was flocking to Jesus. They regarded him as a great teacher and they regarded him as a prophet. Well, at this point in in the Jesus story, and, and just for context, these are the events that take place during Holy Week. The story that I read for you took place during Holy Week, after Jesus' triumphal entry, hailed as, uh, as, as king, as sovereign. Uh, this experience happened right on the heels of that event. And Matthew tells us that these offended and disgruntled Pharisees plotted to entrap Jesus. But their plan, friends, had to be sophisticated. It had to be a scheme where Jesus would incriminate himself He was way too popular for them to go head-to-head with Jesus. They needed a plan where he would make himself vulnerable to criticism. So they did something very unexpected for the time. They conspired with the Herodians. 
Now the Herodians and the Pharisees, they made for a very strange team. Whereas the Pharisees uh, rejected Roman occupation, where they rejected Roman rule, the Herodians actually cozied up to Rome. The Herodians made it their number one priority to keep King Herod and his dynastic line in the throne, even though Herod and that line was a puppet regime, handpicked by Rome. But that was their, their goal. And so the Pharisees, who did not like Rome, who did not like Roman occupation, they would have been at odds around this particular political issue with this group known as the Herodians. But as the saying goes, right, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Jesus was a common enemy to both of these groups. And he was perceived to be a growing threat to both their popularity and to their power. Now, it's interesting that Matthew tells us that the Pharisees don't go to lay the trap themselves. They send their disciples. This is more like sending their interns to execute on this particular scheme, this particular plan. And they also send a group of the Herodians with them. And after they shower Jesus with platitudes, they lay the trap. And they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And and they're not asking about Roman law. They're asking about Jewish law. They're asking about the Torah. Does Moses, does the scripture say it's okay to pay Caesar taxes or not? Now here's why that question was a trap. If Jesus says no, he says no, according to the law of Moses, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians would accuse him of sedition. They would label him a a troublemaker, that he was subverting the power and the authority of Caesar himself. But if Jesus says, yes, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees, along with the populace, will accuse Jesus of being a Roman sympathizer. So the Pharisees and the Herodians set the trap using Caesar and Rome and taxes as the bait. And they think to themselves, aha, we've got him cornered. We've got him on the ropes. He's not going to be able to get out of this one without putting his movement, without putting his message, without putting his life in jeopardy. But remember, friends, right? Jesus does not suffer fools. Jesus does not suffer fools. He knows what's what's going on. Despite their faux praise, he's aware of their malice. He's aware of their malice. So instead of answering the question, he asks them a question in return. He says, basically, do you have a coin on you that one would use to pay tribute or to pay taxes? He asks for a Roman coin. Now I wanna pause here for for just a moment and I wanna invite you to take a little quiz, okay? I want you to take a little quiz. There's no grades, no pressure, I hope you'll Uh, feel free to participate and play along. Now, without checking your phone or your pocket, okay? Without checking your phone or your pocket, I wonder if you can name the two phrases and the one word that shows up on every coin minted in the United States. Can you think of the two phrases and the one word that shows up on every coin that's minted in the United States? Think about it for just a second. Take a moment. Now, if you said 
In God we trust, and e pluribus unum, out of many, one, you would have gotten the two phrases correct. You would also be correct if you named the single word liberty as the other answer. Throughout history, right, currency, throughout history, currency has not only been the medium of exchange of goods and services, but it has also been a carrier and a communicator of ideology. It's a, a communicator of, of, of a particular story, of particular values, of a, of a culture, of, of history. Take, for example, our coinage in the United States. In God we trust, e pluribus unum, and the word liberty all embody part of the dogma we affirm as a nation. It's what we believe. It's what we are committed to. It's what we strive for. We also find engraved on our own coins pictures of presidents. We have pictures of our heroes. We have reliefs of national treasures, both of the, the natural world and the world that's created by, by human hands, like the, like the Lincoln Memorial on the front of, of a penny. You see, coins are not just about currency, right? They're not just about currency. They also tell a story. They communicate essential truths or convictions that a particular people or a particular nation holds. They communicate a sense of power. They communicate a sense of authority and a certain and particular way of life. Now, historians believe Historians believe that the coin given to Jesus in Matthew 22 upon his request was the Tiberius denarius, or commonly called, thanks to the uh, King James translation of the English Bible, it's commonly called the tribute penny, the tribute penny. And on the front of that coin, on the very front of that coin, was the face, was the head, was the bust of Tiberius, the emperor. His head wrapped in a laurel wreath, which communicated victory and communicated rule. And engraved on that side of that coin was the phrase, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. It's telling a story. On the other side of the coin was a picture of Tiberius's mother, Livia. And she was often depicted in reliefs and in works of art as a representation of peace. She sits enthroned holding a spear upside down. It's pointed at the ground and the inscription on that side of the coin reads, High Priest of Peace, Livia. So they give Jesus this particular coin that tells a particular story. And Jesus says, and he asks, whose head and whose title is on this coin? And they answer, the emperor. To which Jesus says, give to the emperor what is the emperor's and give to God what is God's. And I think part of what Jesus is getting at in saying this is that he's saying, look, friends, family of God, Give to Caesar his way of life. Give to Caesar his story. Give to Caesar his values and what he values. Give to Caesar his quest for power. Give to Caesar his idolatry in the declaration that he is a divine son. Give it to him. Let him have all of that. Just let him take it. 
Because that's not the way of life that's set out for the people of God. In other words, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees in trying to take down Jesus and in their quest for power and in their quest for dominance, what happens is is they look more like Caesar than the family of God. Rebecca read in the text from Exodus about how God would create a, a, a distinct people a people that live a different story than the story that is so often lived in the world. And I think Jesus is saying, don't make Caesar's story your story. Don't make Caesar's way your way because God expects something different from God's family, right? The Pharisees are after power. They're after popularity. They they, they wanna do Jesus harm. They want to dominate him. They want to defeat him. They want to kill him. And friends, that's the way of the empire. It's not the way of God. So he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and take up the ways of God. Let him have his laurel wreath because Jesus is going to choose a crown of thorns. Let him have his so-called spear of peace. Jesus will take up a cross and he will make peace through it. Let him have his hubris and and his idolatrous claim that he is divine. Jesus will humble himself to the point of death and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And God will elevate his name above every name in his glorious resurrection. Give to Caesar his ways. Let him have it. And take up the ways of God. Take up the way of Jesus. The way of peace, the way of the cross, the way of humility, the way of authentic worship, and the way of love. Now, friends, I know uh, that many of us, including me, are struggling these days with rejecting the ways of the world, with rejecting the ways of empire in favor of taking on the way of God. If you're anything like me, it's a struggle to consciously each and every day with all that's going on in the world to say, I'm going to commit to the way of God and I'm not gonna commit to the way of the the world. I'm I'm not gonna commit to the story that's on this coin. I'm gonna commit to a story of the one who was on a cross, right? Because taking down one's opponent, right? Humiliating them totally and completely seems to be the order of the day, whether it's in the political sphere or whether it's in the contention and the challenge that school boards and superintendents and families are having around return to in-person education or between Christians and their various opinions about this or that, about a Supreme Court nominee, about what's happening in our society. Friends, Christians should care about these things that are happening in the world. We should be engaged. Our tradition as Reformed Christians says we should be as much engaged in the world. But we don't engage the world the way Caesar engages the world. We engage the world in a different way. We engage the the world the way Jesus engaged the world. And so we choose humility. We, We choose enemy love for the sake of reconciliation. We choose inclusion and justice. We choose empathy We choose generosity, we choose hospitality, we choose the way of the cross. We give to Caesar his way and we choose the way of Jesus. And as we follow on that way, let me say one more thing about about this as a way of encouragement. 
as we seek each and every day to choose that way, and it is a choice, each and every day as we, as we choose that way, I hope that all of us, all of us can find comfort, that we can find hope in this fundamental truth, that we belong to God. That we belong to God. We do not belong to Caesar. We do not belong to Trump. We do not belong to Biden. We do not belong to McConnell. We do not belong to Pelosi. We belong to God. We don't belong to our zip codes or our bank accounts or our successes or our failures or our GPA or our class rank or our fears. We, we belong to God. And we were bought with a price. So let Caesar have his stupid perishable coin. You have, you have the image of God engraved in your soul. That's who you are. You have the image of God in you. And you're called to give to God what is God's which is another way of saying you and I are called to give our very lives over to Christ. And think about it, right? Once we give to God what really and truly belongs to God, after that, there's actually not much left for Caesar. Our ultimate allegiance and loyalty belongs to God, and that truth shapes every sphere of our lives. So I ask you, in these difficult moments, in these difficult days, how will you live this way? How will you live out this story that's different than the story of the world? How will you choose the way of Jesus? How will you give to God what belongs to God in the first place? How will you give your life to Christ? Friends, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the world what is the world's. And give to God what is God's. Because after that, after that, there's not much left to do. May it be so in our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.